Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I hope you're well. I hope you're able to get vaccinated and boosted and that you're still wearing your mask. Still hanging in there for me, at least at the time I'm writing this. Today we have another of Seneca's takes on ancient Greek tragedy. Troades, or the Trojan Women, is based on a couple of Euripides' plays, the Trojan Women and Hecuba. And as with the previous tragedies by Seneca, we'll see that he is once again using the form as a way to teach about Stoicism and how one should behave by showing how one should not behave. The basics should sound familiar from when we covered the Euripidean source material. I wrote that, and I was sure I'd be able to pronounce it today, and yet I was wrong. Anyway, the play is set outside of Troy, obviously, after the city has fallen, both literally and figuratively, to the Greeks. On the Greek side, we have Agamemnon, who you should remember from a lot of past episodes, Pyrrhus, the son of Achilles, who we have seen in other places by his other name, Neoptolemus, uh, but in this play he's called Pyrrhus, and Ulysses, or Odysseus, if you're Greek. This side also has a prophet named Calchas and a messenger named Talthybius. On the Trojan side, we have Astyanax, that sweet little son of Hector and Andromache, Hecuba, the fallen queen of Troy, Andromache, of course, and Helen, obviously. Polyxena, one of Troy's princesses, appears if the play is staged, but she has no lines, so if this was really just a literary work, then she's not there physically at all. Anyway, uh, so she's a non-speaking role if it's staged. There are a handful of speaking but unnamed messenger types and, of course, a chorus of the titular Trojan women. I am, once again, working from the Emily Wilson translation, but you can find something in the public domain with little trouble if you don't have access to that more recent translation. Uh, So with that background, let's take a pause before going through another of Seneca's dark and depressing plots. The play opens with Hecuba asking a lot of questions about power, about fate, about hubris, and mourning the fall of Troy and all of the death that it has wrought. She speaks of how, before Cassandra was born, she foresaw this tragedy, and like her prophetic daughter, she too was not believed. And she describes how the Greeks are currently drawing lots to divvy up the spoils of war, which is to say, the women, including her daughter Cassandra, including herself, despite the prophecy that she's fated to turn into a dog. The chorus cries with her, adding their voices to the despair of Hecuba's monologue. They all agree that, despite the exact circumstances of his death, Priam is the luckiest of them all because he's been spared becoming a living trophy. Talthybius enters with news. The Greeks are stuck in the harbor. Again. It never fails. The Greeks want to sail somewhere, and the gods won't let them. I'm going to pause here to remind you that we have no stage directions, so people just appear because they are speaking, and it's hard to know how long some characters have been in the scene. 
Pyrrhus explains why. The Greeks forgot to give his father, Achilles, the funeral he deserves. And what Achilles deserves is for Polyxena to be sacrificed at his grave. Agamemnon, remembering how he sacrificed his own daughter so the Greeks could get to Troy in the first place, thinks this is a terrible idea. The two men argue over this point until Calchas enters and sides with Pyrrhus with the caveat that it should all take place as though Polyxena is on her way to her wedding and not her murder. Again, sound a little bit like Iphigenia? Just maybe. The chorus thinks this is all ridiculous because there's no such thing as ghosts, so there's no way Achilles could have demanded this sacrifice. Meanwhile, Andromache has had a nightmare and tells an old man all about it. She's dreamed that Astyanax has been killed, so she hides him away in Hector's tomb. So, yes, to protect him from death, she hides him among the dead. Ulysses enters, determined to find the boy and kill him. A bit of verbal sparring with Andromache results in his finding Astyanax hidden in the tomb. Andromache begs for a chance to hold her son one last time, meaning that Astyanax is pulled from her arms, which is what makes Astyanax a speaking role. He has one line, but nonetheless, he has a line, which is one more than Polyxena. We won't get into that. Ulysses, nice guy that he is, in this story, rolls his eyes at this heartbreaking interaction and calls for Andromache to be dragged away to the ships so that he can get on with his murdering. The chorus sings about their pending fates and the various places they'll be taken to as prisoners of the Greeks. Helen enters. She has been charged with telling Polyxena the lie that she's to marry Pyrrhus, and she's all too happy with that task. Andromache is shocked that the Greeks have planned a wedding at such a time, and then she's confused by Helen's tears over the affair, which means Helen isn't quite as cold as she'd like to make herself out to be. Hecuba enters, and the scene continues with all the women, including the chorus, talking about the pain and grief of their lot in life. A messenger enters and provides the graphic details on how Polyxena and Astyanax have died. A key point is that Astyanax, when faced with the possibility of being thrown from the tower, chooses to jump instead. Andromache says that even Colchis isn't as gruesome as what is happening in Troy, which given the way the Greeks thought of Medea and her fellow Colchians, is saying something. And just as she opens the play, Hecuba closes the play by announcing that with these actions, the war is truly and thoroughly over, and everyone can go home now. The messenger hurries the women to the ships, and the play ends. If we look at this play as a literary work, which maybe it was always supposed to be, it has excellent parallelism. Astyanax and Polyxena, Andromache and Hecuba, Pyrrhus and Ulysses, they align through the two stories that are being told in this play, that of the murder of Astyanax and that of the murder of Polyxena. Structurally, this play is magnificent. It works inward with Hecuba's introduction and the plot to sacrifice Polyxena leading to the center of the play when Astyanax is murdered, and then the play works back out with the actual sacrifice of Polyxena and a final conclusion by Hecuba. As a work of literature, this play is awesome. As a play? Meh. Maybe 
It's received mixed reviews over the centuries. Some people love it, some people... Well, I don't know that people necessarily hate it, but it lacks the, shall we say, soul of its source material. Euripides' women are so much more developed than Seneca's. Now, there are two reasons that I can see for this. One is that Seneca's plays have a purpose, right? They are educational treatises on why everyone should be a Stoic, or more specifically, on why Nero should behave better. He's not necessarily trying to tell us the myth. He's using the myth as a morality tale. And the moral is that if you follow Stoic philosophy, you won't get all the gore and bloodshed. But most of the people in the plays don't follow Stoic philosophy, so gore and bloodshed there is. The other reason I can see for this flattening of characters that we find in Seneca is due to the nature of popular Roman theater. The Greeks had big festivals where tragedies were performed. The Romans didn't. They had bread and circuses, chariot races, gladiatorial games. And when it came to the plays that were regularly performed, they were the comedies. And what do we know about Roman comedies? They were full of flat stock characters. Now, Seneca's characters don't necessarily fit into the tropes we see in Roman comedies. Again, he's tackling mythology, which Roman comedy really didn't do. But what we do still see is that flattening of characters to their base parts, which is what stock characters are. So again, as literature, this play is beautifully poetic and magnificently structured. It's gorgeous. As philosophy, it gets its point across. Just read Agamemnon's monologue again. But as a play to be performed, it's lacking. It's flat. So what do you think of Seneca's Troades? Pop over to the blog and share. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. That's in the show notes, of course. The link to my Patreon is there, too, should you feel so inclined. In the next episode, we'll cover Book 8 of the Aeneid. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.